The thing about this film is it tells a truth. And that is great art. And the truth is that the film business created stars as commodities. They were investments. And when you, they, they, they hyped you. You were made larger than life. You were not only sexy, you were the most sexy girl in the world, a la Marilyn Monroe. You were not only beautiful, you were the most beautiful girl in the world. You were the most interesting, you were the most fascinating. There's no such thing. So you became this commodity and you were valuable. It's all about money. It still is. And when this film was shown to other industry leaders, Louis B. Mayer went over to Billy at a private screening and he shouted, how could you do this to us? He exposed that the studios took advantage of vulnerable people like Norma Desmond. And when they were through with them, they threw them away. In the meantime, she bought what she was told that she was. So there was this, this was the tragedy of this film. And by the way, every single person was an opportunist in this film, including me. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and ready for her close-up, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Is that where that quote comes from? <laughs> yes. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeVille? Yes. All right. <laughs> I do know something about it. Okay. I know. You told me you didn't know anything about this movie, and I'm like, that is impossible. I know you do. You just don't know what you know. On this episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of a true Hollywood classic, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard from 1950. And Nakia, we'll talk in a few minutes about that film. But first, I think this movie, and more than the movie itself, its star, Gloria Swanson, affords us an opportunity to talk about something near and dear to your heart. Fashion. <laughs> as much as I am a film and television nerd, you are a fashion nerd. I wouldn't call myself a fashion nerd. What would you call yourself? Um, I, I enjoy it. An aficionado? I'm not an, even an aficionado, because I don't, I mean, I do not have an extensive knowledge of the history of fashion or anything like that, I, but I am a, a fan. You are a big fan. I'm a big fan. If I had more money, I'd be, you know, a uh, super consumer, but yeah. Fashion is sort of a landmark for me in the way that food is. So I think you know this about me is if you want to remind me of something that was happening at a certain point or a conversation that we had <laughs> and there was food involved, you say, okay, well, you were eating this. Right. Or we were and at this like, restaurant. Oh, yeah. It's sort of the same. It, it can be right. the same thing with, with fashion. Like we were that watching. bar we went to, those yeah. good tacos. Exactly. The fucking tacos that I still remember like five years later. I'm like, oh, yes, I remember that night when we went out with your friends and we went to this yeah. random bar mm -hmm. and they had great tacos. So fashion is sort of the same, plays that same role, particularly in film for me, because even if I don't 
don't love a film or I don't quite remember a film, if you say, okay, well, this character was wearing this or you remember that dress <laughs> right. that you really loved, then it'll sort of bring it all back to me. Okay. So I thought this would be an opportunity to talk about, you know, the crossover of our two obsessions. Mm-hmm. Because obviously there has been a long mutually beneficial, mutually parasitic relationship between (laughs) Hollywood and the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. And that can really all be traced back to the star of this movie, Gloria Swanson. Mm -hmm. As Kimberly Truller writes at Glamour, when it comes to the history of fashion and film, it all really begins with Gloria Swanson. No one was as associated with style in the early part of the century as Gloria. She was arguably Hollywood's first clothes horse, both on and off screen, and she became an international star largely because of the inspiration audiences found in her fashion. So we will talk a lot about Gloria Swanson. She had an extraordinary life and career. How no one has made a movie about Gloria Swanson, I don't know. Mm. So she was born right here in Chicago in 1899. She got her start as an extra in two early silent films produced here in Chicago by Chicago's SNA Studios. That was back when Chicago had a film studio. <laughs> that was in 1914 and 1915, her first two movies, one of them a Charlie Chaplin film. She eventually made her way to California and she signed a contract with Paramount in 1919. And over the next Two or three years, she became, by the age of about 23, one of the biggest and most sought-after actresses in the world, Mm. working primarily with the legendary director Cecil B. DeMille. And DeMille was all about spectacle. You know DeMille from his last movie and one of your favorite movies, The Ten Commandments. (laughs) That was Cecil B. DeMille. (laughs) Some good fashion in there. (laughs) You know, he wanted nothing on screen that was not going to wow audiences. Mm -hmm. And that included the clothes. So working with Swanson and costume designer Claire West, his movies became fashion shows. Mm -hmm. And Swanson became a fashion icon. And she became so popular and brought so much money to Paramount that they essentially gave her everything she wanted, including the biggest clothing budget in the history of the world. It's my dream. As Gloria once said, we had clearly found the formula for success, a never-ending parade of fabulous gowns. Swanson might have 20 costume changes in a movie, and just tens of thousands of dollars in 1920s money were spent on her clothes. For example, 1920s Why Change Your Wife, directed by DeMille, might be the first movie makeover story. Hmm. Gloria Swanson plays a dowdy wife who gets dumped for a fashion model and discovers the power of fashion in winning her husband back. (laughs) So she has a complete makeover and, you know... As listeners may hear, we are recording this on a stormy night in Chicago. (laughs) It's a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Yeah, so as Bronte Naylor-Jones writes at Catwalk Yourself, (laughs) audiences loved Swanson's Pictures, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, not only for her performances, but also for the fashion. DeMille films were a visual fet, allowing the viewer to escape into a world of lavish set designs and haute couture gowns adorned with jewels, beading, sequins, and feathers. Though the clothing was elaborate, the public embraced the styles. Swanson's costumes, hairstyles, and accessories set trends, and female audiences aspired to recreate her looks. The actress helped popularize rising hemlines and brought heels decorated with imitation pearls and stones into fashion. Because of the gorgeous nightgowns and negligees she wore in the films, a 1923 fanzine said, Every time Gloria Swanson appears in a new picture, the market price of flannel drops 10 points. Here is Anne Helen Peterson writing at the hairpin. She says, Swanson's image was unironic in a way that we can't quite understand. 
She didn't appear glamorous and elegant, she embodied glamour and elegance. Mm. At one point, she was making and spending $20,000 a week, which is a cool quarter million in today's dollars. Yes! These were the days of the gold bathtub, black marble bathroom, four personal secretaries, and an Atlantic boardwalk chair in which a manservant wheeled her around the studio lot. <laughs> she spent 10000 a year, 125000 in today's dollars, on lingerie. For a 300-person dinner party, she gave favors of go- solid gold compacts for women and solid gold cigarette cases for men. So this was just, you know, the embodiment of Hollywood glamour mm. and excess. And she actually, I mean, as we will discuss in relation to this movie, you know, in the movie she is playing a former silent film star that has faded into obscurity. Mm-hmm. And that, to some extent, was the course of her career, although not as much as people think it is. Um, but Swanson did eventually sort of get out of Hollywood and did a lot of other things with her life, which we can talk about. But one of them was that she became a clothing designer. Mm-hmm. Um, she always said that she didn't really get enough credit for how much influence she had on her looks in the movies, Mm -hmm. that she was sort of an uncredited costume designer in her own movies. And in the 50s, she became a fashion designer. She designed a dress line for middle-aged ladies, and this line rebranded what we would call plus sizes as glamour sizes. Oh. uh, And made a lot of money doing that. She later established a cosmetics line using only natural ingredients, so she she was just a fantastically interesting woman. So this was why I thought it would be a good excuse for us to talk about fashion and fashion icons in movies, since mm-hmm. Gloria Swanson was probably the first of those people. And it was interesting. I, I It's not something I've thought about a lot, the mm-hmm. relationship between Hollywood and fashion. One of the articles I was reading was talking about those early days of Hollywood and its impact on the fashion industry in that previously fashion trends would take months or years. Right. To spread across the country. Right. And movies could do it instantaneously, mm-hmm. where something would just catch on, like, the second it appeared in a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So what are your what, what are your thoughts about the relationship between these two things? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's natural that we talk about film and fashion and the relationship between the two sort of sectors, because they are both sort of based around creating a story, building a narrative, building a character, and they are both, you know, aspirational and Mm -hmm. glamorous and, you know, sort of inherently consumerist. Like you mentioned with the rise of sort of Gloria Swanson, as we saw the sort of popularity of, of films grow in the 20s and 30s, screen idols became sort of fashion role models like the images Mm -hmm. that they created on the screen started to sort of inform the fashion of women in the world Um, and we saw that start with the silent film era with an actress like uh, Clara Bow Mm -hmm. she was sort of one of the big ones and then you had Hollywood costume designers who had a hand in sort of creating the fashion language beyond film so someone like Edith Head who was famous for designing for Audrey Hepburn Mm -hmm. and Grace Kelly those the costumes that she designed infiltrated the larger market like it defined an era of fashion for women when we say women we're also talking about a very particular subset of women not all women and we can get into all that but what you saw was that you know outfits that were worn in films were often copied by retailers Mm -hmm. the idea of audrey hepburn's little black dress in right. Breakfast at Tiffany's, like the idea of the, the the concept of the little black dress has just become this sort of 
constant in fashion. It's, you know, when anyone is talking about what does every woman need in her closet, the little black dress. The LBD. The LBD is always <laughs> on the list. I personally do not have an LBD. How do you not have an LBD? <laughs> because I'm not a D person. Yeah, I'm, you don't wear a lot of dresses. <laughs> So I have, you know, little black pants and like in suits. But I do if you're a Hepburn, you're a Catherine. You're I'm, not an I'm much more a Catherine than I am an Audrey. So I sort of fail on that part. But that's the thing is that you could almost every woman could sort of connect. You could find your character in film. So I could be a Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. or you know a Greta Garbo or a Marlena Dietrich. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was also that you know film stars then became almost defined by the looks that they they sort of showcase in their films. Like Audrey became almost a caricature of herself. Like when you thought Audrey Hepburn, you thought either that. Right. Which is actually something Swanson dealt with and Mm -hmm. sort of spoke about later in her career. She said, I realize the clothes make me what I am, and I dread at the same time becoming a mannequin sort of Mm -hmm. actress. Mm -hmm. That that's, you know, she knew how big a part fashion and glamour played in making her career, but she didn't want to be defined by that and didn't want to, you know, be seen as just a clothes horse. Right, right. I mean, I think that, and there were, you know, a number of actresses that probably sort of fell into that trap. Likely largely due to just sort of sexism in the industry, right? Is that Sexism in Hollywood? You know, it happens. Say it ain't so. <laughs> but someone like Marilyn Monroe, right? Who then right. just becomes this sort of stock photo of platinum blonde hair. And you either are picturing her in the, the white halter dress from yeah. Seven Year Itch. Or the pink strapless gown from... Um, Gentlemen prefer blondes. Yes, from gentlemen prefer blondes with all the diamonds and everything like that. So, it's like, so these, these sort of images... That become trapped in history that aren't necessarily informing fashion beyond the film. It's just sort of, it's a costume moment. And it is great for that. And it it sort of Mm -hmm. holds its place in history. But it it doesn't necessarily engage in any sort of, in sort of the larger conversation about fashion. There aren't many women walking around in the gentlemen prefer blondes outfit. Like, that's just not, it doesn't translate in the way that some other... Right. It doesn't trickle down. It doesn't trickle the, down, mm-hmm. and it's not <laughs> the most accessible styling. Some of my sort of favorite fashion in film moments are probably ones that, you know, are a lot of people can sort of relate to. Annie Hall. Right. With uh, Diane Keaton in the, you know, her Ralph Lauren sort of men's masculine wear. menswear mm-hmm. attire, which again is, you know, I love. Um, 1954's Rear Window. Oh, Grace Kelly With in that Grace dress. Grace Kelly in the dress that she just, you know, she was fresh from the Paris plane. Um, and it was this wonderful deep V-cut neckline and cap sleeves, this fitted black bodice, and this full skirt, very sort of Dior, new look style. Um, and she wears a number of just gorgeous outfits throughout that whole and, film. And she tells, Jimmy Stewart asks, and she says... That dress was a steal at eleven hundred dollars, and that's at like nineteen fifty four dollars. Like I wouldn't pay eleven hundred dollars for an outfit now. She looks fabulous in it. I don't even know what that translates to. (laughs) But Hitchcock was great with costuming, and he was very sort of meticulous and involved in the costuming of his of the actresses in Mm -hmm. his films. Tippi Hedren in um, The Birds. Mm-hmm. He was very adamant about her wearing green during the scene where she's attacked by the crows. And right. it is a beautiful green suit. And if you're going to be attacked by crows, <laughs> look like Tippi Hedren you while you're doing suit. it. <laughs> 
so yeah, so that was also Edith Head. And we talked about Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I want to mention, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that that little black dress is a Givenchy dress. It is actually Edith Head's reinterpretation of a Givenchy design. Okay. So I just want to correct that. There's Rosemary's Baby with um, Mia Farrow. You know, she's known that sort of pixie haircut became, was just phenomenal and mm-hmm. just sort of exploded. But it was also the sort of mini A-line shift dresses and Peter Pan collars and very sort of cute wardrobe that you sort of still see in forming fashion to this day. Sort of more in line with my own <laughs> film <laughs> lifetime. Uh, there's a movie like Clueless, which... That may have been the first movie that made me want to go and buy things because of what I saw in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had the plaid matching twin sets and the knee-high socks with the, you know, the shoes and the back. And it was just ultra-feminine and preppy. I just read something about that movie, and I don't remember where I read it, but it was someone from another country mm-hmm. who said when they saw Clueless, they thought that's what American teenagers dressed like. American teenagers again, money. it was like we all, right. we all mm-hmm. wanted yeah. to look like that and started designing our outfits accordingly. Right, yeah. I, Even yeah. though I'm not sure there were any American teenagers dressing I like that. I think there were some. It was before that movie. So there were stores like Contempo Casuals that sort of, that was sort of the aesthetic of those those types of stores where you could get the sort of quote-unquote clueless look. Um, but again, you had to be a teenager with money, parents that would give you money to uh, purchase clothes because you saw clueless. But then it was also, again, it was it, it's a very sort of white, upper-class California right, style. Right. And there was almost like a whole other conversation going on in communities of color about fashion. Like, it was the Jinko jeans, and it was Tommy Hilfiger and FUBU. I don't know if you have any idea of who Aaliyah was. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but she was like an R&B singer, and her style was sort of the shit when I was in high school. And it was the sort of baggy pants and then the tight sort of baby doll shirt. And it was sort of sort, so tomboyish but still sexy at the same time and very sort of sportswear-oriented. So you had these sort of two style dialogues happening at the same time, and depending on where you f- you fell, you know, culturally and socioeconomically, that sort of defined, you know, what you connected with, though the Tommy Hilfiger and shit, that stuff was expensive as well. Then you had, like, Sex in the City, and the, the impact of Sex in the City was probably more so through the television show, but they had two films, which were not good. Um, but <laughs> Sex in the City had... It put sort of Manolo Blahnik shoes on mm. the map, the sort of Fendi baguette bags, very logo heavy, the nameplate necklaces that Carrie was known for wearing, though Latinas have been wearing those necklaces since forever. Then there's a film like The Royal Tenenbaums, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Margot, which you could see in form uh, Alessandro Michel's first, first show for Gucci. I think it was like fall 2015, so it was the, you know, the sort of oversized... Vintage fur coats and Ivy League shoes and polo shirts and things of that nature. Devil Wears Prada is probably a big one. Uh, I mean, it, it takes place in the world of fashion. That, that movie is the sum total of what I know about right. the fashion industry. And it has that sort of makeover moment. Mm. And, you know, so Anne Hathaway's character walks out in the fabulous thigh-high Chanel leather boots. And it is this sort of, oh, 
moment. Uh, <laughs> and again, it's that aspect of like every girl wants to, well, I won't say, but you know, many girls want to just go into the Vogue closet and be able to sort of put on anything, right. you know, between the size zero and six or whatever the hell ridiculousness they have in there and, you know, have that moment and be that sort of princess. See, every time that movie is on and it, it's it's on a lot. They do actually play it a it lot. Plays, it seems to play 24 hours a day. You can find that movie on cable somewhere. I say I would not put up with that job. Like, there, nothing is worth putting up with the, the shit clothes. that she And you say you would do it no, I, I mean, just yeah. to be able to get into that closet. <laughs> I don't know how much they're actually able to access the clothes in there. Like, that's very much a Hollywood version of that job. But, yeah, if I could play around and actually wear the clothes, I would absolutely take whatever abuse you gave me because I would love a pair of thigh-high Chanel leather boots. So there are a lot of those movies. I mean, in sort of big and small ways, Flashdance and that just a small yeah. moment of her with the off-the-shoulder shirt yeah. and Olivia Newton-John in Greece with the skin-tight leather pants. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention... Well, don't be remiss. The Wonder That Is Mahogany. Not the greatest movie. But... <laughs> <laughs> Diana Ross wears some fabulous costumes in it. And it's very sort of that... Halston's sexy jersey dresses and things of that nature. Again, a woman that I am not but would aspire to be if I had a totally different life and personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if there's one woman in film and television, well, there have been a few, there are a few, depending on my mood, but who's sort of been with me for a very long time, where's, like, I want to be her. I know who you're going to say. Who am I going to say? Tilda Swinton. Wrong. So, so okay. So this is the thing. I have many women that I want to be. <laughs> Tilda Swinton on the red carpet, I would live. Like, I would love it. Because she wears so much. She has a close relationship with Hyder Ackerman. And she wears a lot of Hyder Ackerman on the red carpet. And, again, it's a very sort of androgynous suiting and really beautifully cut, tailored pieces. I would shoot somebody's mama to wear some <laughs> of the clothes that she gets to wear on the red carpet. But in terms of just, like, every day, I could probably actually be that girl. Okay. Nia Long. Really? Yes. She probably doesn't come up on, like, a lot of the sort of, you know, influential fashion in, in, in film and television discussions. But in Fresh Prince, I wanted to be her. I loved her short little pixie haircut and her cute style. I wanted to be her in Best Man. I wanted to be her, like, <laughs> in Love Jones. Oh, my God, I wanted to be her in Love Jones. And it's it's very cool, city girl, relatable, sexy, neutral for the most part. Like, not a lot of crazy colors, not a lot of craziness going on. That's who I wanted to be. That's my sort of screen style icon, surprisingly. Okay. Okay, so I noticed you didn't mention a film that I've seen on a lot of these lists of the most influential fashion films. Please don't say uh, Gone with the Wind, because that no, one is on a lot, and I just cannot deal. No. Okay. <laughs> and I know, you know, you have no desire to make dresses out of curtains. No. Uh, no, I was thinking about Blade Runner, another one of your favorites. Mm. That's, yeah, that, I mean, that's another one where didn't care for the movie. But just... <laughs> and actually, you made fun of the clothes in the movie. I did sort of make fun of the clothes in the movie. With the pop collars. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we, you know, we're in this moment where a lot of people, a lot of designers are sort of um, exploring sort of quote unquote dystopian um, well, fantasies. That's, that's it's, the mood. It's fair. <laughs> it was fair. So. You see it um, at design houses like Balenciaga. Um, Rafe Simmons' Spring 2018 collection uh, was actually, you know, channeled Blade Runner. You know, there was this blend of sort of Asian and Western culture, again, rooted in sort of this present and future dystopia. Mm. The Fifth Element is another sci-fi movie that Uh has informed a lot of fashion as well. 
we saw it with the fashion and costuming in uh, Black Panther, which was very much around this. Oh, yeah, I was surprised you didn't mention Black Panther. So that's the thing. So Black Panther is an interesting one, and there are a number of films that sort of fall in this category of, like, costuming versus fashion, and sort of where that line is drawn. But you saw in the cast... The clothes they wore on the they red killed the red carpet for they a year shut the red after carpet that down. film yeah. were clearly inspired yes. by the movie, but yes. it was translated into fashion. Right, exactly. Um, so yes, it was very much around this sort of Afrofuturist fashion, this blending of sort of Pan-African style with Westernized style, like vibrant colors, amazing cuts um, and tailoring. That last scene with Chadwick Boseman at uh, the UN Council... He's wearing that beautiful scarf with the suit. Mm-hmm. That's um, from a design house. Um, Akira Jones. They design these beautiful pieces, these scarves and jackets and things that are placing images of blackness in these sort of typical spaces of sort of white religious iconography. And it's really powerful. And so, again, it's this sort of, with that design house in particular, it's uh, marrying West African textiles and design ideas with westernized tailoring techniques so you sort of get at you know how can clothes create a narrative how can clothes create a story but then you know the next level is how can clothes allow sort of marginalized communities and that's both consumer and maker allow them to tell their own stories and sort of reclaim an artisanship that has historically been denied in the fashion space um, because fashion is still very white and Western as represented in film, in Hollywood film, at least. So who are today's Gloria Swansons? Mm. Who were who are the fashion icons <laughs> of today, in your opinion? Mm. Or do we not have the same? I mean, in general, I think the whole Hollywood glamour thing is not what it was it's in not. the 50s, obviously. yeah. I don't think it's the same. I, I mean, the market is a little bit different in that. Because it's almost the same with, like, this idea of supermodels, right? That, that, that we don't have supermodels anymore. We don't have supermodels anymore? Not in the way that, you know, Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell and Linda Evangelist. Like, you just don't have those fucking okay. beasts on the runway. And um, but they were just icons in their own right. We're in this time of, like, Instagram influencers and bloggers that have become the sort of fashion role models for a lot of, I will say, young women. So I don't know... I don't know that film is sort of driving that as much as it used to with the sort of rise of social media. That's one piece of it. And then the second piece is, I think the red carpet has always been transactional. And, you know, it's even more so now and it's probably more transparent now like you know such and such actress has a contract with Louboutin or you know mm. so there's sort of less surprise on the red carpet there are less I don't I don't know that there are a lot of moments created on the red carpet anymore and again there are absolutely exceptions to that rule uh Lupita Nyong'o on the red carpet you can count on her nearly every time to just be amazing and wonderful, right. you know something. But outside of Black Panther and the costuming there, I don't know that she's like a film fashion icon in that way. Well, yeah, I mean, her twelve years of slave right. outfit, not really, <laughs> not really aspirational. Aspirational. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a, 
Are there any, I mean, so what they said about Gloria Swanson is people went to her movies to see what, to she, see was what she was wearing. Mm-hmm. Does that dynamic, do you think, exist anymore? I don't know that it does. I mean, I think maybe for some films, so you had a movie like Ocean's 8, which I think the fashion was very mm-hmm. much, you know, it took place at the Met Gala. And you had stars that were sort of known for their, their red carpet presence, particularly someone like um, Kate Blanchett. Right. And of course, the queen, Rihanna. Um, so <laughs> so you you sort of go to that to see, okay, well, what are they going to be wearing and what sort of fashion moments are going to be happening in the film? And, you know, what is the promotional tour that is, is going to look like? I mean, again, so Kate Blanchett has had some great costuming. Um, a lot of her stuff is period, though. So she did Carol and the costuming, and right. that was great. She did... Um, did she play Catherine Hepburn? I think she. Yeah, she yeah. did in uh, so, the Aviator. Right, yeah. So the costuming in that was great. Yeah, I don't know that there's been a big moment on screen in a while. So there was the green dress in Atonement that Kira Knightley wears. Mm-hmm. Kira Knightley's character, um, I think. Jacqueline Duran created this gorgeous green bias cut silk dress that she wears in a really pivotal scene. That I believe you can still buy knockoffs of that dress. Yeah, I don't know. I'm having a hard time sort of coming up with a list of <laughs> current film fashion icons. I mean, there are people who I love and look for on the red carpet. There aren't a right. lot of them. So again, someone like Tilda Swinton, I look for Rihanna, who is who's sort of film, but is more sort of music pop culture figure. Um, Lupita. But I do think that there are films that are where fashion plays a big role and could maybe open the door to actors that, you know, fashion hasn't traditionally considered helping them become those sort of film fashion icons. So a film like Crazy Rich Asians, where the fashion is just ridiculously off the charts and... Those aren't necessarily the the actors and actresses that are getting the contracts with the big design houses for their red carpet premieres and things like that. Right. So films like that should sort of provide an opportunity for someone like Constance Wu to become someone that you look for on the red carpet. Because success of the film has now made her, you know, quote unquote, marketable entity, right, to some sort of traditional design houses. So, like, films like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians, I think, can do two things. One, they can provide a platform, particularly on the red carpet, for designs by artists that are outside of the traditional sort of fashion space. Mm -hmm. But they also provide, they sort of shine a light on how good your design could look on Angela Bassett. She wore a yellow Alaya jumpsuit to one of the premieres for Black Panther. And it's just like, you, sh- you should just be sending her all your shit. Like, Angela Bassett <laughs> should just be wearing... <laughs> it's just, like, she is phenomenal and she will work the fucking outfit and she looks amazing. You should be sending Lupita all the things and you should be sending... So, and, you you know, Constance Wu should have all the things. And so, I think there's an opportunity to sort of diversify what we think of when we think of film fashion icons. And I, I don't know that that happens that one the creation of film fashion icons is happening at the same in the same way that it happened in film previously i think a lot of it really is red carpet and social media right now but so but still creating these fashion icons by then entering into some sort of partnership with them or lending them pieces from your collections and letting them rock it because they do and so that then opens up this idea of aspirational fashion right because then it starts to reflect more of who the customer is 
So why is that important? Because clothes are important. Fashion is important. Was it? I, I think it was Bill Cunningham that said, you know, sort of fashion is the armor that we put on every day. And I sort of fundamentally believe that. You know, yes, it can seem superficial, and yes, it can seem frivolous, and yes, it is, you know, can seem ridiculous to spend eleven thousand dollars on a fucking dress. But you have to fucking wear it. Like you, you like it's, it's 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 almost like the food you eat. Like what you put in your body is extremely important mm-hmm. because it, it is nourishing you from the inside. And I think what you put on, like you are you're making a choice to put something on, and you're walking out every day. And what you're wearing is making a statement, whether you want it to or not, or whether you intend for it to or not. And people are making assumptions about you based on it, whether they are accurate or not. I think if we can expand the idea of what is aspirational. You know, in this conversation, speaking specifically through, you know, fashion and film, then we can get to a place where the fashion icons will sort of represent the diversity of race and gender and ability and size. Then there's more points of connection for the audience, right? And I, that can only be a good thing. I mean, it's interesting because it gets into this question of Hollywood shaping what is aspirational, shaping what is beautiful, Mm -hmm. telling the world this is beautiful, Mm -hmm. and by extension, telling the world what is not beautiful. Right. And that's why that expansion that you're talking about is so important. And I guess, and I think, you know, when when you ask the question about sort of current fashion icons, I think that's why I was having a problem with it because I don't even know that Hollywood is the place that people go to, that a lot of people go to for that anymore because there are so many other sort of channels. And again, I go back to sort of Instagram and social media and bloggers have sort of stepped in and taken that space of sort of aspiration. And it's, and that, and that space tends to have a lot of the similar problems, right? Of like they tend to be white and thin and wealthy, but at the same time, the sort of democratic nature of social media allows for these little niche spaces to be created for representation of other communities that you can seek out. But it's still important that Lupita Nyong'o is on the cover of Vogue. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And still important that Constance Wu is not on the cover of mm-hmm. Vogue. Absolutely. Yet. Yes. Those are still, even as we create sort of our own spaces or, or, or sort of participate in these more democratized spaces, there are still these sort of totems of status that when you, you sort of attain that that recognition, it does say something. You know, there is this moment of, okay, you know, I feel seen, we feel seen. You know, it means something that Lupita Nyong'o has a contract with Lancome, you mm-hmm. know? those. So those things are extremely important. I just wonder whether or not sort of Hollywood fashion icon is still as relevant now as it was. And I don't necess- I don't know that I know who that person is right now. And I'm open to, like, I'm, if people, if there's someone I'm forgetting, please <laughs> remind me. <laughs> but, yeah, I, don't, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a question. Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning. That's the Homicide Squad, complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported from one of those great big houses in the 10,000 block. You'll read about it in the late editions, I'm sure. You'll get it over your radio and see it on television. Because an old-time star is involved. One of the biggest. But before you hear it all distorted and blown out of proportion, before those Hollywood columnists get their hands on it, maybe you'd like to hear the facts. 
the whole truth. If so, you've come to the right party. Okay, so let's talk briefly about this movie we're going to watch, Sunset Boulevard. And you said you don't know anything about it. No. Okay. But you recognized the line I quoted earlier. Yes. So you probably have seen references to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably recognize things throughout that have been parodied and referenced in other works, including the opening, which I'm pretty sure Archer used in one of its seasons. Okay. Uh, I won't spoil for you. I mean, it's it's kind of spoiler proof. It, the movie sort of opens with its biggest spoiler, but I'm gonna we'll we'll maintain your <laughs> my innocence your innocence going into it. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about the background of it and why we're watching it. And I mean that part I think takes care of itself. This is just one of the essential Hollywood classics. Mm-hmm. Again, the year is 1950. It was directed by Billy Wilder. This is actually the second Billy Wilder movie we've watched for the podcast after Some Like It Hot. Mm-hmm. And you have seen, what else of his have you seen? Sabrina? Yes. Seven Year Itch, I think you've seen. Okay. And then he has several other films that are on our list that we'll get to one of these days, including The Apartment, From Here to Eternity, Double Indemnity, Stalag 17. He was one of the most prolific and, in my opinion, one of the best writer-directors of that era. Mm. Um, He wrote the film with his frequent collaborator, Charles Brackett. And I actually think it makes sense that we open today's conversation talking about Hollywood glamour and how maybe our relationship to Hollywood is not the same as it was in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Because I think think an argument can be made that this film is a dividing line in how we view Hollywood and how we view Hollywood glamour. Mm -hmm. At a time when Hollywood still saw itself and sold itself, as this wondrous dream factory, Sunset Boulevard presented a very different picture of Hollywood as this place of sad and broken dreams, <laughs> a place that chews up and spits out stars and wannabes alike. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was much more in line with, I think, the more realistic, more cynical view we have of the movie business now. Mm-hmm. And it actually pissed people off. At an early screening, the head of MGM Studios, Louis B. Mayer, accosted (laughs) Billy Wilder in the lobby afterwards and said, you have disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. Wilder, to his enormous credit, told him to go fuck himself. Nicely done. So certainly, I think, as far as big mainstream movies that critiqued Hollywood. This was one of the first and certainly one of the most important. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. Um, It only won three. It won for screenplay, score, and art direction, in part because that was the year of another movie about show business that was slightly less cynical and more user-friendly, All About Eve. Mm. So it lost a lot of those Oscars to All About Eve. That's fair. I'm not mad at that. That's Yeah, it's hard to argue yeah. with that. <laughs> um, surprisingly, neither Gloria Swanson, the star of this film, nor Betty Davis, the star of All About right. Eve, won the Best Actress Oscar. Who won? It may have been that they sort of... They, sort of similar role, yeah. Not really similar roles, but aging actress roles. Mm-hmm. Judy Holliday won for Born Yesterday, which was a surprise, I think, to everyone. Everyone is expecting one of these two actresses to win. Sunset Boulevard was among the very first group of films 
deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant enough to be included in the Library of Congress. It is ranked 63rd on the Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the Greatest Films of All Time, and number 12 on the AFI list of the Greatest American Movies. If you'd like to check this out one of these days, there's a musical version that opened in 1993, uh, originally starring Patti LuPone, and then Glenn Close most famously played the part on Broadway. So I don't know what else to tell you about it going in. Like I said, I think it's probably best the less you know about it. I have a lot more background about the actors and things. But I think I think it makes more sense to talk about those after you've watched the movie. Okay. So, I don't know if I can ask you what you're expecting. You have no idea what to expect. I'm expecting fabulous wardrobe. She does wear some great outfits in this movie. Although, again, this is the fading version <laughs> Of the glorious silent film star. Well, those are this usually is... the best ones because they're trying to desperately hold on to something. So they turn it out. This is glamour in decay. Okay. Well, I think let's uh, let's just go watch the movie. Okay. Okay. I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And we're back. During the break, Nakia and I saw Sunset Boulevard. And Nakia, let's pretend we're with the Chicago Tourism Board for a moment here. Okay. Uh, we saw this film at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, which mm-hmm. is one of America's great movie palaces. Yes. And it was kind of the perfect place to see this movie. So Sunset Boulevard's this film about a fading silent film star and Hollywood glamour degenerating into grotesquerie. Uh, It takes place primarily in a giant mansion the narrator calls a mausoleum, the kind of place that crazy movie people built in the crazy 20s. (laughs) And that's kind of what the music box is, too, in the best possible sense. It's this gigantic 800-seat theater built in 1929 and designed, in the words of Chicago Tribune architectural critic Paul Gap, in an architectural style that's an eclectic melange of Italian, Spanish, and pardon my fantasy put together with passion. At a time when most movie houses were dual-purpose venues, they had both theater and film Mm -hmm. at the same time, the music box was built just for movies. It had no stage. But it had an orchestra pit and an organ, just in case this crazy experiment with sound (laughs) failed and movies went back to having live accompaniment. Right. So, you know, built right at the cusp of the sound revolution in motion pictures, which is what put poor Norma Desmond out of business, it really was kind of the perfect location to watch this movie. It was. I love that theater. Okay, so, Nakia, what did you make of this film? Good. <laughs> I would have been disappointed if you hadn't. I'm, I'm in general. I'm a fan of broads, so you do like a crazy old. I, broad. I like a crazy old broad. Um, and if she's also wearing a fabulous turban and a wrist full of bracelets, then I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I'm totally on board. I will go help you bury your dead monkey. <laughs> yes, let's do it. 
Okay, so let's let's do a little background on this. So Billy Wilder originally envisioned this film with Mae West and Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a lot of other people who were considered or offered parts in this film. Great silent film star Mary Pickford was offered the role. And she apparently turned it down, ironically, because she honestly believed she was still too big a star mm-hmm. to play this has-been queen. So, a little irony there. Um, Montgomery Clift was cast in the William Holden part. And then two weeks before filming was supposed to start, he quit the film. Supposedly because he was dating a woman, a former singing star, twice his age. And she threatened to kill herself if he actually made this film. A little too close to home. Because people would think it was about them. Wow. Uh, Fred McMurray was offered the part. He had turned it down. He had worked with Wilder previously on Double Indemnity. So we ended up with Gloria Swanson and William Holden, who were sort of the perfect people to be in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film is full of Hollywood figures who are literally playing themselves. We have Cecil B. DeMille. We have the great Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, right at the end of the movie. Buster Keaton. We have Buster Keaton as one of the Waxworks, the Bridge Partners. <laughs> The other two waxworks are also former silent film stars, Anna Q. Nelson and W.B. Warner, the latter of whom is Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Oh! Yeah, but I think there is, there's an extent to which everyone in this movie is playing what is, at the very least, a funhouse version of of themselves. themselves. Um, Obviously, Swanson was... You know, the biggest star in the world for a brief time during the silent film era. And Gloria Swanson made the transition to sound a little better than Norma Desmond Mm -hmm. did. Um, In fact, she was Oscar nominated for both her last silent film and her first sound film, which she produced herself. She was someone who took charge of her own career fairly early. But her career really was kind of over mm-hmm. a few years later. So once sound came in, she was she was on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, she didn't become a crazy lady living in a house. <laughs> she actually had really a really interesting career after that. She had one of the first TV shows hosted by a woman briefly in the 40s. She ran a patents and inventions company in the late 30s <laughs> that helped basically rescue European scientists mm-hmm. who were trying to come over because of the Nazis. Oh, wow. Whether that was charity or Mm. exploitation is up for a little bit of debate but nonetheless she saved some lives actually helping scientists come over so yeah she's not she's not exactly glorious Watson, but that's she she was definitely good casting for this part and then william holden was you know a struggling young-ish actor instead of a screenwriter Mm. he had been a contract player for paramount he'd actually made a lot of movies but they were pretty thankless forgettable parts he had one leading role that was pretty well received before the war but then he went to war and when he came back from war he sort of had to start over and he was playing a lot of secondary parts and Mm -hmm. he was not a happy guy at that point in his career um nancy olsen who plays Betty. betty in the movie has said that He was a deeply disturbed and disappointed man at that point in his life. He was drinking too much. You know, he was not satisfied with his career. So again, he was sort of perfect casting Mm -hmm. for Joe Gillis in this film. Nancy Olson was still a student. She was still studying acting at UCLA when Billy Wilder cast her in this movie. This was only her second movie. And she was... Naive and innocent, but ambitious. Um, She said her nickname in college was Wholesome Olsen. (laughs) So, 
again, pretty straightforward casting here. Mm -hmm. And then we come to, to me, the most interesting part and the most interesting character in the film, Max, the Mm. butler, played by Eric von Stroheim, who was one of the greatest directors of the silent era. Mm. His 1924 film, Greed, is considered a masterpiece and one of the most influential films of all time. Is that on our list? It's not. I I admit I have never seen it. For one thing, Stroheim's cut is eight hours long. Ah. Uh, it is, just to come back full circle a couple of weeks, it is one of the films that inspired There Will Be Blood. Huh, okay. But yeah, I mean, he was one of the all-time greats, but he was notoriously obsessive about his art. He was a perfectionist. He would not compromise. And so once the studio system came in in the late 20s, he did not fit that system at all. And by 1934, his directing career was pretty much over, and he was mostly reduced to taking supporting parts as an actor Mm -hmm. um, in films like Sunset Boulevard and in Grand Illusion. He has a great part in Grand Illusion, but he was very bitter about that. (laughs) You know? knew himself to be one of the greats and resented the fact that he was playing supporting parts. He referred to this role as that damn butler part for the rest (laughs) of his life. So certainly this film is, at the very least, informed with a genuine knowledge and authenticity. And cynicism. A cynicism. The bitterness is is not feigned Mm -hmm. in this film. And like I said before, it was received in Hollywood in a very mixed way. There were people who recognized it as a masterpiece there were people who were pissed off and felt like it was just (laughs) shitting all over the studio system um at the at the first screening apparently mary pickford who i just said had turned down the film she'd been a great silent star she started crying and ran into the ladies room and wouldn't come out because she was just overwhelmed by it um Barbara Stanwyck supposedly bent down and kissed the hem of gloria swanson's dress at this screening wow and then, as I said before, Louis B. Mayer, one of the studio heads, <laughs> yelled at Wilder for making this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's all extraneous. Let's let's talk about the movie itself. What what what, what were your impressions? Um, I think it was interesting to be watching this movie, given the sort of cultural moment we are in right now, the hashtag Me Too movement, mm-hmm. and the sort of growing transparency around pay disparities between women actors mm-hmm. and their male counterparts. So that sort of feeling that though the studio system doesn't exist in the same way that it did in the 30s, it's still a system that inherently exploits really everyone, but particularly women. Women. And creates this dynamic where we put actresses on pillars and 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 sort of build them up as idols in anticipation of knocking them off. Like the, yeah. the idea is that they will always be knocked down. And that is just sort of part of the deal, right? is that I am going to build you up and, you know, give you fame and give you glory and give you money. But, you know, it's sort of the Cinderella at the end of the ball moment. It's like, yeah. you're, you know, 35 or 40, we're going to start, yeah. you the know. The nature of the business <laughs> is you, you know, got a limited shelf life. There just life. won't be space for you. There's always the going to be the next There's, big thing that right. comes along and pushes you out. There's always going to be somebody younger and prettier and, you know, whatever. So it felt relevant. It didn't feel like, oh, this is an old film that is talking mm-hmm. about sort of old things that have, yeah. you know, sort of... I don't think there's anything about this film no, that feels dated. not at all. Not at all. Even the idea of her being old 
or somehow undesirable. At 50. At 50. But there's this great scene where, you know, this is, I want to say, sort of middle of the film, where she has sent her script to Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. You know, she's gone to the studio. She thinks it's getting made. And so she has all these extreme beauty treatments done. Oh, yeah. And there's a scene where they sort of put a magnifying glass over her face. And the idea, I guess, is that it's supposed to be sort of illuminating the lines on her face. Mm -hmm. And There are no lines on that woman's face. she looks fantastic. (laughs) She's flawed. (laughs) So it's just like this idea that she is somehow grotesque at 50. And she's like, there's not a line on her face. She has no pores. She looks amazing. And so it's that, that same sort of thing now where we have women who are considered, you know, quote unquote, old Mm -hmm. and less desirable but they are in any sort of real world setting they are stunning women who are sort of defying time really and i like how that that sort of brutal makeover Mm -hmm. or not makeover but i guess what do we call that (laughs) training training (laughs) maintenance montage is followed pretty quickly by the scene with betty where she talks about the fact that she got her nose she got her nose done Mm -hmm. So here's this 20-year-old, 21-year-old. She said they did a screen test. They didn't like my nose. I went and got my nose fixed. I came back. They They liked my my nose. (laughs) Now they didn't like my acting. But it's this, like, it is very... The fact that more women don't go mad is kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. Because even in if we take it out of Hollywood and you just look at sort of advertising that is geared towards women, the fact that they have... You know, teenagers and 20-year-olds selling wrinkle cream. Right. So it's like these are women who do not have wrinkles. <laughs> so you're sort of constantly chasing this image of perfection and this image of youth that is not attainable unless you're in your teens or your 20s. Like that's just... Right. It's called gravity. It's called aging. It's, you know, so... And this is something that actually Nancy Olson has talked about. I watched a couple of interviews with her. And she did not become a big star. Mm-hmm. And she says, she, you know, she wonders if, in part, that was because, like, the message of this film got into her. Mm-hmm. And she realized it was not worth it, trying mm-hmm. to be a big star. She made a few more movies. because um, She was Oscar nominated for this, her second movie. And she made a few more movies after this, and then she took some time off. She married and had children. She came back. She did a couple of Disney movies in the 60s, but she didn't. She never became a big star. But she talked about, she said, this film tells the brutal truth about a part of the motion picture industry and how it can ruin one's life. Mm-hmm. To be exploited for other people's profit can be both painful and humiliating. To be portrayed as larger than life is distorting and destroys the delicate balance between fantasy and reality. And she talked about how the people that needed that were almost by definition these very vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. You know, she used Marilyn Monroe as an obvious yes. example. Mm-hmm of this very emotionally vulnerable woman who got blown up into this impossible ideal. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, a fall is inevitable right. after that. There's just... And there's no one there to No one you. can live with that. Yeah. And she said it. it's all about money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the reality of it. These stars were literally commodities, yes. investments. Mm-hmm. And the interest of the studio was in selling them, blowing them up, and then as soon as they outlived their usefulness getting rid of them right so getting back to the sort of me too sort of pay equity moment that we're in Mm -hmm. um is there an agency within quote-unquote madness she was very much suffering from depression and right suicidal ideation at the very least um but i do think 
or at least I do wonder if there's a point towards the end where she knowingly leans into it. Mm. Where, you know, who is it that has that quote? Um, you could either be the love interest, the mother, or the judge, or something. What's that? Yeah, there's a fa- there's. I don't remember who said it. It's something like that. There's three stages right. to a woman's career. It's like ingenue, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy, right. something like that. And then so maybe there's a fourth that's that isn't talked about because it's 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 a sort of desperate last act. But this sort of the mad woman, the mad the, woman, right. right? This idea that okay, you think I'm crazy, and yeah. I may also be a little crazy. I'm going to lean into it a little bit. As like this is going to be my final performance because this is now the only way that I can get your attention. Right, there's something That's, empowering right, in that. That there, the scandal is now the only sort of mm. realm within which I can attract cameras and attract eyes. Well, I mean, I think we we could compare that. I think this would make a very interesting double feature with a film that was clearly influenced by this movie. Uh, it was actually the last movie we did for the blog when mm. this was a blog series. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yes. I mean, that, again, we it's, you know, very similar. And I think mm-hmm. Baby Jane was obviously drawing on Sunset right. Boulevard. Right. But these two characters, like you said, leaning into that mm-hmm. madness, being like, almost like, what do I have to lose right. at this point? So I think that's And becoming admirable in right. a weird way for that. Because I think the, the sort of interesting thing about Sunset Boulevard is try, remembering that this is not Norma's story. This is Joe's story. Really? Okay, we can argue about that. Because Joe is the narrator. Yeah. And so then the question is, can he be considered a reliable narrator? That's a good question. And I question that because of the way the two women in his life operate. So Norma becomes that sort of grotesque, old, bitter, delusional woman that, you know, is ready to kill herself for him. Or at least the sort of idea that a young man like him could love her. Mm-hmm. And Betty is the, is the sort of naive, ingenue, idealistic right. woman who just wants to help him get his art out. Like, <laughs> I just want to help you right. write this genius thing because I recognize the genius in you that you are so bitter that you can't see. Those are two women approached from a very sort of male gaze. Like, that's a... Yeah, you're right about that. And I don't, and it, the whole thing is from his point of view, mm-hmm. right? I don't know that we get any scenes that he's not in. Or near, right. Like yeah. from Norma's perspective right. or Max's perspective mm-hmm. or Betty's perspective. Like it, it is all. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hadn't so then, of that. find, so that's where I get to. So finding a way where Norma has some agency, where it, it is, you know, Norma's maybe reclaiming something. And, and again, even if it is sort of through this moment of madness. She shoots him because that sort of creates a new narrative. Like, that's, okay, now we have a story. Right. The sort of crazy old, where she's forgotten, the star, where right. she's the star crazy of the old, story, forgotten actress. Which is how the movie ends. Right. Right. So I just thought that was really interesting. That sort of interplay between the male narrator, who may or may not be reliable, and the sort of the agency of the femme fatale, and less so... Um, right, the, on, the ingenue at one right. end and the femme fatale at the other immediately end. immediately ready to leave her fiancé and just yeah. so taken by Joe's genius and his writing that she was just going to, you know, bet it all on him. Um, now, I'll challenge that a little bit because something else Nancy Olsen says a lot is that everyone in this film is an opportunist, including her. Mm. That her character... 
That's true. Is just as ambitious and just as grasping as everyone else. She in the does film. say that basically, I need you to finish this so that I can get my entree into writing. Right. She it, it's, she's not the she's not the girl Friday right. helping him realize his vision. Mm-hmm. She's saying this guy has talent. Mm-hmm. I can hook myself. That's true. That's true. Onto That's his fair. wagon yeah. and make something of myself. I think I guess their love story was just too easy for me. Like she was just so quick to go, oh, and there there's nothing about him that is appealing yeah. in my opinion. And she is still very much right. that innocent, mm-hmm. like she very much represents that right. the fresh, idealistic view of right. Hollywood. I mean, at the end of the movie when he invites her back to Norma's mansion to sort of expose his own yeah. lie, like how he's been living, that he's been basically a kept man by Norma. And she says, we're going to leave here and we're going to forget that this all happened. And, you know, I don't know anything about this and we're just going to walk off into the sunset together. It's just like, bitch, really? Yeah. Like, no, those are all kinds of red flags going off. You need to be like, "Mm, you don't write that well. It's time to go. Okay, we're skipping all over. And I think that's, no, I think that's good. Let's do that. Let's not try to go through this movie (laughs) chronologically. So let's talk about that scene because is that his one noble act in the movie? I mean, did he have any other choice at that point, really? I mean, he... Here's he could have made up a story to tell Betty, and she would have believed it. Through the whole movie, he was, this is him. Please don't give me any money. I don't want your money. <laughs> I don't want these new clothes. Put the clothes on. <laughs> I don't want to look at this. So his resistance. Yeah. No, no, he absolutely sells right. his soul. So I don't find him noble at but all. But then is what I'm asking is, is that redemptive at the end? Because he says, he has a line, he says something like, after she has said, after Betty has said that she'll leave Artie mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. And then he goes back to the mansion and he says, here I am with Betty Schaefer's life in my hands. Right. And that's when he has it out with Norma and that's when he invites Betty to come see what a shit he is. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something redemptive in that in that he is sort of setting Betty free. He's kind of... I mean, a little bit, because he was still macking on his friend's fiance the whole time. Well, yeah, time. that was again. So, but I'm saying at the end, he steps away from that and he says, "I'm done with this." Yeah, I don't. He doesn't. I'm not going to corrupt yeah. this innocent young girl. I'm not going to leech off this crazy old lady anymore. But this is already after you've sort of brung her into the crazy. <laughs> like the, you should have just ne- never engaged with her on that level at all. Just Betty is forever sullied after this experience. When you could have just as easily been like, no, I have chosen to be a gigolo, and I'm going to just do that. <laughs> okay, so let me let me offer you another perspective. Okay. Uh, and I would, this is where I would push back on Nancy Olson's assertion that everyone in the film is an opportunist. I would say, except for Max. And I would say that there is a way in which this film is the strangest and most touching of love stories. He, I think Max deeply loves Norma. His dedication to her yes. is absolute. Whether or not that love is healthy is a question. And we don't, and we don't know that the first time we watch the movie until fairly late. Mm-hmm. But if you watch it a second time, you know there's scenes like when he installs Joe into that bedroom in the house, in the house yeah. and he says it was the husband's bedroom. Yeah. That was his fucking yeah. bedroom. And the other husbands, but yes, and the other husbands. Right. But yeah, that yeah. was his bedroom. And again, there's weird real life things. The scene where they're watching movies in the house mm-hmm. and they're and she's showing, you know, one of her old movies. Mm-hmm. That is a famously unfinished film that she was producing called Queen Kelly that Eric von Stroheim directed. Oh. And actually they, she ended up firing Stroheim 
as the director mm-hmm. on that film because again he was just too much of a perfectionist and mm-hmm. too difficult to work with mm-hmm. so that film was never released the first time anyone saw footage from that film was in this movie mm-hmm. when she's showing it and you know max is in the background right, watching running it. the projector yeah i mean yeah but he has that line where he says something to the effect of you know i discovered her when she was 16 i made her a star i cannot let her be destroyed so there's still this it's love but it's also an ownership mm. sort of thing that makes it unhealthy and makes it... She's still almost like a not a real person. She's a product. She's, she's something mm. that he helped create, and he wants to sort of protect that. Well, and that's... I mean, I think that is a question like, was it good that he was maintaining right. her illusions all these years? Right. Would she be 20% less crazy mm-hmm. if he had not been writing thousands of fan, fan letters, letters yeah. to convince her that people out there still loved her? Mm-hmm. But it is weirdly touching, I think. I mean, it is a deep dedication to someone, (laughs) bordering on obsession, and also maybe some weird psychosexual things going on there to go from the person who was sort of the power figure in the relationship as her former director to then being her, basically her slave at her beck and call. Mm -hmm. There's sort of some weirdness there. Yeah. I mean, it's the closest thing to love in that film, probably. (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely is. Which is sad, but yeah. I I was fascinated with her hands. Okay. For the whole film. Okay. And I don't know that I've ever seen anyone act like that before. And I know it was very much sort of walking right up to that line of parody and too yeah. much, and then at the end, of course, just letting it all go. But it's also that silent film style right. of she acting that's so expressive. She acted from head to toe yeah. in every scene, and I think um, in the first scene when um, when Joe first gets to the mansion and she sort of sits him down with her script for the Salome picture, and he says something to the effect that she sits like a sort of a coiled snake or something like mm. that. The way that she articulates her body in the scenes, I found transfixing and sort of both horrifying and I couldn't quite look away from her (laughs) because it was like a praying mantis. It was very much like she's sort of in this position and just sort of ready to pounce. And so you're just watching her because you're like, what what the hell are you about to do? But her hands were often in these sort of claw formations uh-huh. and it was fine because i had that like you remember the the little alien toys from toy story when they see the game and they go <laughs> the, the claw. claw i was like the claw <laughs> it, was just, it really was that sort of moment where as soon as she would start to move i would immediately zero in on her hands and which is interesting because that's sort of one of the places where they say if you want to you know see a woman's true age look at her neck or, or right. look at her hands yeah so the fact that she was sort of drawing so much attention to her hands and that they were so aggressive, like they were not graceful, really. But in just about every scene, they were they were never sort of at ease. She was either, there was either the sort of the cigarette ring holder yes. that she would have yeah. on her finger, but it, it was, they were always, always sort of tensed up, almost like a rigor mortis that was sort of setting in. Mm-hmm. I found that fascinating. But yeah, I do think it probably is that silent picture thing where you don't have words, so your body has to yeah. communicate so much. We didn't need voices. We had faces. We had faces, but she acted from every, you know, neuron of her body. And I just found her just amazing to just watch move throughout a scene. And with the hands and then the way that some of the scenes were shot, there are a lot of ways where this movie played almost like a horror film. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the scene where Joe discovers that Max has moved him into the main house. Oh my God, I love that shot. And he comes in and it's shot. And so the, the camera's very close up on uh, Max's hands, his gloved hands, and he's playing the organ, which organs are just inherently creepy. <laughs> um, <laughs> So he, but so, yeah, they must have hollowed right. out in Oregon to put the camera there because it it's right on his hands. And then you see Joe them. in the background pass the hands. And and so with the sound of the organ and the way that shot is just such an awkward, disorienting shot. And it, it feels like a horror film. Yeah. Um, and it's also a little foreshadowing there that Max is the puppet master. He is, right. That Max is the one who's... Making you know, it all happen. Yeah. And then there's the other scene. And again, going back to Norma's hands... When Max has called Joe back to the mansion because Norma has slit her wrists because yes. she's so distraught that Joe has left her. So Joe comes racing back. Norma's in the bed, you know, putting on the full performance of I'm just so distraught and upset and I know you don't love me and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then he comes over to the bed and Ole Lang Syne is playing and he says something like, uh, Happy New Year, Norma. And she says, Happy New Year, darling. And then the claw comes up and like grabs him and draws him in yeah. for a kiss. But there's nothing romantic or sexual about it, it feels like Dracula has just sort of ensnared <laughs> yeah. their, his victim. So there are a lot of scenes like that where it, it almost felt like you were in a horror film. All right, well let's let's talk about Joe a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you you apparently were not a not a fan. Happy to be a fan of, of Joe. Joe. Joe don't pay his bills. <laughs> well, Joe, <laughs> he's having a hard time making ends meet. Yep. He owes yeah. the the car company two hundred and ninety dollars. Mm-hmm. They're trying to repossess his car. Mm-hmm. So he goes begging everyone in his life for the money. Um, But he is just, it is hard to have sympathy for him because he is just dripping contempt. And bitterness. And loathing and self-loathing throughout this entire movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, when he first shows up at the house, there's no reason for him to be as mean about her as he is. And just contemptuous and just superior Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he starts playing her. Right. She has money and I need money. You know, she says, I wrote this script with my heart. He says, that's why it's great. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think it's great. He just, he's just wheedling for a job. Yeah. He's just manipulating this crazy old lady. So it, it is a willing step into damnation. Yes. No, he thinks he's the one playing the game. Right. And that he's the smarter one. Right. Yeah. And then, like you said, almost immediately, he starts losing that control. Right. Where he, he literally wakes up and all of his stuff is in that room <laughs> right. above the garage. Max has gone out. Got his shit. Robbed his apartment, basically, <laughs> and gotten all his stuff. Snuck it into this room while he was sleeping. That's the part that is. It's like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, very spooky. Right. You are never leaving this place. Yeah. Yeah. And then she promises him an exorbitant salary, but mm-hmm. he says at some point that he never saw any actual cash. Right. You know, she bought him anything he wanted right. and a lot of stuff he didn't want, but no freedom. No. His car does get repossessed. Yes. Because he can't get the money out of her to pay the guys when they show up to take it. So he mm-hmm. does lose that bit of his freedom. So he is. He is trapped in this prison, but it's a prison of his own, of making. His own making. Yes. No, I mean, he. I think the first time he meets... Betty, and she's sort of talking about his writing and that, you know, there are pieces of your writing that I think show signs of genius and that there's something there. He says something to the, she says, like, I've heard you have some talent. And he said, that was last year, this year, I'm trying to make a living. Trying to make a living, And so this really is someone who's just like, this sort of Hollywood dream of being a great writer is not what's, what's happening, so I need to just make some money. And so with all that sort of cynicism and bitterness and judgment, he enters into this warped entanglement with Norma, this, this 
transactional yeah. relationship with Norma. Yeah, that that cynicism about the art mm-hmm. is right there from the beginning, which must have been part of what pissed off Hollywood about yeah. this movie, because it is just kind of insulting to the entire studio system. He talks about how he wrote a screenplay about Okies in the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. that ended up taking place on a torpedo right. boat. <laughs> He brings in this screenplay to the producer about a baseball team, mm-hmm. and the guy like is like, "What if we make it a woman and a musical?" Right. <laughs> it's just, yeah, and it's just it, like I think um, it reminded me a little bit of Barton Fink and that idea of like, yes. this, "I'm a great writer and I'm going to go write write great movies." It's like, no, I just need you to write this really formulaic piece yeah. to, to just turn it out and sort of stripping away that magic and that idea that oh, we're here to create Wallace you know, Beery wrestling right. picture. <laughs> Original Clar- idea. <laughs> Clarice Swanson's first husband was Wallace Beery, by the way. It oh, was not, really? It was not a happy relationship. Oh. It was abusive. And, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah, I have no sympathy for him at all. He got a Vicuna coat. Bitch, I would love a Vicuna coat. <laughs> That's a creepy scene. They're it in the is. store and the salesman gets super close. Gets super close. And whispers and says, in his ear. Hey, if she's paying, if she's for, paying it, for it, why not go for the Vicuna? Which, hell, Yeah. <laughs> If you're going to pimp yourself out, get the best. Yeah. Get the vicuna. That I mean, that's the moment where it's like, yeah, you're just a gigolo. Yeah. But Joe keeps having these opportunities to do something different. And I like how, I think um, Schwab's Pharmacy mm-hmm. plays a minor symbolic role in this movie. Because that was very much, you know, the legend is that Lana Turner was discovered mm. at the counter at Schwab's. And Joe says something about people hanging around right, Schwab's so the waiting for their big hanging, break. Yeah. So that's this symbol of the Hollywood dream that, mm. you know, your whole life can change. By the way, like everything else in Hollywood, that was a lie. Lana Turner was not discovered at Schwab. She was discovered at some other place. But <laughs> beside the point, that's what the legend has become. But he runs into Artie and Betty. Betty there. And that's where she's like, hey, why don't we work on this screenplay together? And that's when he, Joe, has come in from the limousine to get cigarettes right. for for Norma while she's waiting in the Dressed car. Dressed in his finery. Dressed in his finery. And it's, again, it's just one of those moments where you could step away from this, you could live a better life, but mm-hmm. no, he goes back to Norma and gets in the car and drives off. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what Betty represents for him throughout the movie, is that... This escape back to right. a purer world. Right. Still not a completely pure world, no. but a purer because world. Because she's engaged to someone else <laughs> that you know personally. Yes, your good friend Artie, who was just offered to let you live with him. Two seconds later, Joe is hitting on his girlfriend. Yeah, he's gross. <laughs> but she's not any better because she's responding. She is. And she's either responding because she's interested in Joe or she's responding because she needs to get because it. she is interested in his screenplay. Right. But either way, she's not she's not a, that much more noble than Joe is at this point. Mm-hmm. It's a more innocent kind of ambition, but it's still it's still naked ambition. Yeah. What I'm saying is Joe should really just be more appreciative because as Queen Beyonce says, let me upgrade you. Okay. (laughs) And Norma upgraded his ass. She taught him how to play bridge. She taught him which wine goes with which fish. She taught him how to tango. Like you just need to like. Taught him how to dress. Right. Mm -hmm. Vicuna coat. (laughs) Well, there's actually a moment where he does say that. He says, I think it's at the New Year's Eve party. He says, you're the only person in this stinking town who has been good to me. Mm -hmm. But then when he realizes that she's romantically or sexually interested in him. Which, duh, dude. Right. Then it just becomes this this horror. Right. And again, like you said, she's only 50. She's only 50 and she's a stunning woman. Yeah. She's actually a very beautiful woman. And 
it sort of gets back to that idea of men thinking that they deserve young, beautiful women. That that's sort of what they're owed. Mm-hmm. And these men are never like you're a broke ass <laughs> B movie writer. <laughs> you own one shirt and one jacket and one pair of pants. Your car's about to get repossessed, mm-hmm. but you could do better. <laughs> get the fuck. Who are you? <laughs> like it is something ingrained. <laughs> In your brains from, like, childbirth, like, you all deserve Miss America, and you bring nothing to the table, and it just astounds me but every that's time. that's what Hollywood is all about, is that dream. It astounds me. You raggedy-ass piece of nothing. <laughs> you can't pay your bills, but you deserve some, you know, nubile, like, it's, no, nope, no. I, have, I hate Joe. I don't like Joe. <laughs> Well, fortunately, he's dead lying in a swimming pool before you even meet him. he deserves to be. (laughs) The only thing that I would have regretted is if he'd fallen in the pool with the Vicuna coat on. Because that just would have been a waste of a good coat. (laughs) This movie just had some great moments. Yeah. When when Norma does the chaplain routine, I just think that's a magical little moment of... Norma and Gloria Swanson just sort of showing off and having yeah. fun. As and and an that actually was, she had done that in a film mm-hmm. in the 20s. She had done a Chaplin this impersonation. A wonderfully little charming moment. So that didn't, that struck me, not the Chaplin routine, but the one before that, I don't remember what she's wearing. The like follies. Some kind of girly mm-hmm. outfit. Mm-hmm. That was that seemed to me the scene in Baby Jane seem to come from that mm-hmm. to me. Where she's trying to be sort of sexy. and Right, she's yeah. trying to be a little girl, mm-hmm. trying to do a little... That, yeah, no, that one I didn't like because that was very much, I am performing for the male gaze. Right. I want to appear sort of sexy and um, enticing in that way. And it was that moment of, like, you're 50 trying to play 25. Right. Um, whereas the chaplain thing was really just, this is a craftsman who is having fun with their craft. And in that, it is inherently attractive and mm-hmm. interesting because she's just being who she is and showing off her gifts. Funny enough, dressed as a man. Right. Um, so, yeah, I thought that dichotomy of those two performances happening back to back was a sort of interesting moment. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the scene where she goes to the studio? Yeah. So that was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> She goes to the studio thinking that Cecil B. DeMille is interested in her Salome picture. Right, because Paramount has been calling the right. house, and leaving they, messages. Uh, it is found out, not by Norma, but by Max and then later Joe, that Paramount was calling the house not because of her script, but because they were interested in renting this old car that she had for some picture that they were doing. But she is going, entering the studio under the assumption that they are interested in, you know, working with her again as an actress. So there is this sort of, everybody has this sort of look of pity and embarrassment that she's there and that she doesn't know the truth. But again, there's this sort of great moment. DeMille sits her in the director's chair and initially she's just... DeMille is very nice to her. He's very nice to her and very much like... So one of the, like, stagehands or somebody makes a comment about she must be, like, a thousand years old or yeah. something now. And Cecil B. DeMille is just like, well, how old does that make me? Because yeah. I could be her father. And he also makes a point to say, you know, the studio system destroys these people. Yeah. And then we sort of discard them. Yeah. Somebody says we can give her the brush off. Right. And he says, well, 30 million fans have, have already, already given done her that. the brush right. off. Let's not do that. So 
he sits her down in the director chair and initially she's just sort of there by herself. And there's this great moment where a microphone floats yes. by her head and she just sort of smacks <laughs> it away as like the silent film. Yeah, after. She's exactly. just like, fuck microphones. I don't need a microphone. Um, but then the, one of the light yes. operators um, recognizes her and is like, Norma, Norma. And he turns. Ms. Desmond. Yes. I'm sorry. Ms. Desmond. And so he turns the spotlight onto yeah. her and just like one last chance to bees bask in the to honey, all of the extras and things from the current film on set flock to her and just surround her, and she's just surrounded by all this like obvious love and adoration and respect. And then Cecil B. DeMille comes over and said, tells the light operator, "Put that light back where it belongs," and it just leaves her, and everyone leaves, and she's alone again, sort of in the dark. Yeah. And so it's it's a very powerful moment of like within you know fifteen seconds of what it means to sort of be an aging actress. Like, there's, you know, one minute the spotlight's on you and everyone is around and loves you. And then mm-hmm. just as quickly the spotlight goes away and you're alone again. But that that scene also has a weird grace to it and a, and a almost an empathy for her. Mm-hmm. In that, I mean, it could have been a humiliating scene. Yes. And it isn't. Right. DeMille does love and respect her. Yes. He knows she has no career in mm-hmm. film anymore. Mm-hmm. But he does love and respect her. Some of the people there don't know who she is, mm-hmm. but enough of them still do that she gets that moment of attention. Yeah. She gets that moment in the spotlight. The whole film sort of treats her like it's... And that, I think, is makes it different from Baby Jane. You know, Baby Jane actually had no talent and right. was living in squalor. Right. And But no, Norma had talent. Yes. Norma did become rich. She's not living in poverty. Mm-hmm. She you know, made a lot of money and mm-hmm. she did well for herself. And she was a genuine star. People mm-hmm. do still remember her that way, which is both more respectful to her and makes how she ended up even worse. And crueler, yeah. Right. Because she wasn't like Baby Jane. She wasn't a fraud. Right. She was a genuine talent that mm-hmm. just got At the chewed up. age. Right. Right. By mm-hmm. this industry. But she has that great line when they first get to the studio where she says, you know, without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount Studios. Mm-hmm. I think, so again, it, it sort of speaks to this idea of these women built these studios literally on their backs. Yeah. And once they sort of dared to age out of, you know, whatever Hollywood ideal of womanhood is, then they were cast aside. Okay, you want to talk about the ending? One of the all-time classic endings of any film. Mm. So she shot that fool that needed to be shot. <laughs> because nobody leaves the star. <laughs> Especially no broke-ass B-writer. And so she committed murder, so the police show up. <laughs> so, and so we find her in her room, sitting at her dressing table, sort of primping and pruning and looking in the mirror and just completely... Out of it, from what we can tell. And they are trying to get her downstairs so that they can put her in squad car. Yeah. And someone mentioned something about the newsreel cameras. Yes, the cameras have showed up. The cameras have shown up. And there's this moment where you see her eyes sort of light up at the recognition of, oh, God, the cameras are here. Yeah. And in her mind, it's, you know, Paramount Studios film cameras. Yeah. And so she must get ready for her scene. And Max, in his kindness, um, <laughs> sort of helps the police and everyone sort of create this illusion for her yeah. that, yes, the, you know, the studio is waiting. The cameras are waiting. We need you to get ready for your scene. And he instantly slips into director yes. mode. He becomes the director of the scene. So they leave and she gets herself together and she exits the room and stands at the top of the stairs. And at this point, Max is down at the bottom of the stairs with the newsreel cameras and he's directing them as a film director would direct yeah. a film camera where he's saying, you know, put the light on Norma, put the cameras up to face Norma. 
and then follow her as she descends the stairs. And she has this moment where she says, you know, I don't know what scene I'm doing. And he says, this is, you know, the scene where the princess comes down the stairs of the palace. And it is really a sort of powerful, magical moment because you feel such deep pity and sadness Mm -hmm. for her. But at the same time, you recognize what a fucking amazing actress she is because she owns that fucking crip walk man she owns it and you're also happy for her you're happy for her because she gets to have this moment even though it's not real she gets to have the just like joe got his pool but no (laughs) it was not real she comes down the stairs and everyone is just frozen around her on the stairs and they're just watching her totally transfixed and again like i said she's moving very deliberately and head to toe the whole body is sort of contorting and in this moment and she gets down to the bottom of the stairs and she breaks and she says i can't believe we finally got to do this i'm so happy to finally do this and you know the only thing that matters is us here and the people out there in the dark i just wanted to tell you how happy i am to to be back and i will never leave you again and we're going to do so many more films together it's going to be wonderful and another picture and then you know you get the infamous line of i'm ready for my close-up and the camera sort of zooms in on her and then sort of fades out. And again, she she sort of does this sort of choreography with her hands while she's standing there. And it's very mm. odd, but you cannot stop looking at her. Yeah, I it was a very, very powerful ending. And you don't know what happened. Like she gets into the squad car and does she go to jail? Does she go to, you know, an insane asylum? And does she go yeah. to, you know. But in that moment, she got to sort of reclaim what she had lost, even though it was not real. But you know that that scene is going to play on the news. Absolutely. And so that's the thing of like, the scandal then becomes the art piece, right? right. And it's exploitative, but at the same time, is there some agency she, in it? She will be a star. Right, again, she will be a star. At least briefly. Um, and it will be, but it will be because we have a morbid curiosity around people who we think have sort of degenerated in that sort of way. People that were on top that have now fallen, there is some sort of morbid curiosity around, then we have to then witness that fall. Right. Um, and then we, depending on the person, we may allow some sort of redemptive story arc afterwards, but it will be brief and it may not, it likely won't be lasting. But yeah, that was an amazing final shot. And coming back to real life again, I mean, it, this was... Gloria Swanson's big return Mm -hmm. to celebrity. She was Oscar nominated for it. This movie was huge. And then that was pretty much it. Mm. She said she got a lot of offers for parts that were just like Norma Desmond. Yeah. She got a lot of eccentric aging movie star offers. She didn't get any good offers coming out of this. And again, she was pretty much done Mm -hmm. after this. So this Mm -hmm. was her last, her last moment in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. She made a few more movies, small parts. She did a few cameos. She did a cameo as herself in like an airport movie. She made a couple of B pictures mm-hmm. late in life. But yeah, this was this was her last moment in the sun. Which is interesting because I think that's sort of what happened with um, Betty Davis and um, Joan Crawford after Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. They were both sort of asked to sort of continue to play that yeah. role. Yeah. And it's like, well, I don't want to. And be... in fact, they made another right. movie that was sort exactly. of just that like was Right, Baby and Jane. it failed. Mm-hmm. So this idea that you sort of get trapped in this, what did you call it, horror hag or hag horror hag sort horror, of, yeah. <laughs> sort of um, archetype. And so again, it's just like, you know, the audience wants you to lean into the crazy because then that's, that's sort of the only role that they're expecting you to play at this point because you are a quote unquote older actress and they can't see sort of beyond that. Um, they can't see you as anything else. Right. Okay, so what haven't we talked about? Um, On your general theme of men are shit, 
I can tell you that Gloria Swanson was married six times and divorced six times. None of the marriages were happy. Because men are trash. <laughs> they were probably all garbage. Like, that's the thing is, like, what you end up finding with these quote-unquote broads is that... Nobody was worthy of no them. No one was worthy of them. But it, the narrative was they were crazy or they were difficult or they were just, you know, you're destined to just be alone. It's like, no. Yeah. The men were trash. She had an affair with Joe Kennedy, the father of Bobby and JFK. <laughs> he was doing some movie producing and he helped finance her, her company, Gloria Productions, and sort of handled the finances. Mm-hmm. And he was embezzling from her. See? And in fact, he was buying her, lavishing her with expensive gifts. With her own fucking with money. With her own fucking money See, that he was this, charging through her company. This is what I'm saying. You trash ass <laughs> pieces of shit. Like, I just... Some of y'all are unworthy of the title of man. Yeah. I cannot even understand it. And they expect you to be the person that you were on screen. And then when you aren't that, they get bitter and resentful. And they find ways to punish you for that. Yeah, it's... Yeah, we could... If we want to get dark, we can get gifts worse than that. <laughs> she... I said she was married to Wallace Beery. Um, in her memoirs, she says he raped her on his, on oh their God. wedding night. And then a little later, when she became pregnant, he... She says, forced an abortifacient down oh her throat. God. So that she would lose the baby. That was her first abortion. She had another one when, I think at that point she was married to her second husband. That's when she met the Marquis and, and fell in love with him and got pregnant. And because the studio had a morality clause, mm. it would become clear if she had the baby, it would become clear that she had, had, an, affair. That she had, had an affair. So then she had that baby aborted. And actually that abortion almost killed her. She ended up in the hospital in Europe. For weeks. And so that's like the question of how do these women go crazy? How do they not go crazy? Yeah. The whole system is conspiring to drive them crazy. And so we have these discussions of like, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so? It's like, that bitch went crazy because you drove her insane. (laughs) Want to be a movie star? No. One, I couldn't. Like, I just, there's just no way. Vicuna Coats. Hey, I will happily play, you know, dress up. If somebody wants to spend money on me and buy me a Vicuna Coat, then absolutely. And I will hang out with you and I will tango with you and I will bury your dead monkey. I will do all of the things. But no, I, no, that's not. The price is too high. The price is too high. And I also, because I have internalized the sort of image, I know that I wouldn't even make it past the door. Not just being a woman, but being a black woman. Being a black woman and not, you know, looking like Lupita or Halle Berry. Mm. So there's just so many reasons why <laughs> I would not make the well, cut. Being a black woman who isn't going to put up with any well, shit. Right. Go, and not that. And, but see, but then, uh, right. So we have to be careful around language like that because then it becomes, oh, she was too weak. And that's why she sort of fell victim to the system. It's like, well, no, she was trying to work within a system and make a career for herself. And she made some choices. Right. Or, it's, but it's true that women are not allowed to be difficult. No. Somebody tweeted last week or the week before talking about the Louis C.K. thing and mm-hmm. how he was making his comeback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and said, hey, remember when Catherine Heigl was an asshole a couple of times? And, like, and she never, never worked, worked again. again. Right. People are still pissed off yeah. at her just because she said something a little salty. But men can be the biggest dicks in the world. And literally be showing their dicks around yeah. the world. And get away with anything and their careers are never hurt footage of Christian Bale screaming at people on set and stuff like no, that. No, they're just artists. Doesn't hurt their No, careers. they're just right. method actors and they're getting Stories into the Stories of Johnny and, Depp abusing right. his wife. Like, none of that no. hurts any of them. No. But God forbid 
a woman say, I deserve equal pay. Or God forbid a woman say, I was sexually assaulted by this studio head. And so we go back to Salome and say, demand their fucking heads on a platter. <laughs> that's, that's the moral of the story. That is the moral I was going to ask you what the moral of this story was. and I, I That's think actually we, one of my favorite paintings. I think paintings. we arrived at it. There's a painting in the Art Institute called um, Salome with the head of St. John the Baptist. And it's, um, I believe it's, the artist's name is Rennie. And I think I wrote about that painting in college. I took this art class, this art appreciation class, and I wrote about it. And I fucking love it because I'm going to show it to you. Like, look how beautiful and beatific <laughs> she looks. And he looks fucking ashen, dead head dead on a fucking shit. platter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she's just like, rosy cheeks. This is what I wanted. This is the moral here. Okay? Take their fucking heads. It's <laughs> all you need. The world would be right. I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> that's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Akia, a few months ago, we had a segue into summer episode mm-hmm. with, I think it was on Golden Pond. <laughs> yes. On Memorial Day weekend. It is now Labor Day weekend. The end of summer, so I think we need to do an end of summer movie. Okay. And I am proposing Greece. So here's the thing about that. <laughs> summer loving. The end of summer already just makes me sad. Uh-huh. Because it's my favorite season. Yeah. And now you want me to spend the last fleeting hours of summer yes. watching a film. I have no desire to watch. And it's a musical. It, yes, it is. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to find someone to cut off your head. <laughs> it's got to happen. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Or leave us a review on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. The claw. <laughs>